0: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Isra Yazijiolo, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at St. Joseph's University, about her exciting new book, Understanding Quranic Miracle Stories in the Modern Age, published by Pennsylvania State University Press in 2013. In understanding Qur'anic miracle stories in the modern age, Professor Yazigiolo draws connections between an array of scholars from different time periods and cultures in order to make sense of miracles and miracle stories in the Qur'an. What are miracles? Why do they occur in stories? And how does the Qur'an define this complicated concept in particular ways? To address these questions and others, Professor Yazugiolo gives particular attention to to Ghazali, Ibn Rushd, David Hume, Charles Peirce, and Saeed Nursi, which makes for a rich and multi layered investigation into the limits and possibilities of science, epistemology, and scriptural hermeneutics. In our discussion, we also talk about Professor Yazigiolo's Giolo's intellectual background as a biologist in secular Turkey turned scholar of religion, and how her own social context has influenced and challenged her scholarly pursuits. Yazigiolo's compelling and well-researched monograph will likely interest not only scholars of the Qur'an, but also philosophers as well as natural scientists. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Isra Yazijiolo. Good morning, Isra. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. And we look forward to hearing about your book, but... Before we talk about that, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and how you got interested in Islamic studies and specifically how you got interested in miracles in the Qur'an?
1: Sure. Um, In terms of my education, I come from a medical science background. I was uh, three years into medical school before I switched to study religion. And uh, my interest in religion Came a bit before my medical school. I, um, back in high school, uh, uh, I was very fortunate to have a, a wonderful science professor, dear Yamina Murmer. Uh, she had a PhD in theoretical physics and she was also very learned about Islamic theology. So she got me interested in the relation between science and religion. I found it fascinating to think through life's big questions with her. And when I started uh, the university, I was also studying with her and her husband, who is uh, an Islamic scholar as well in, in Quranic studies. We were studying then subjects in uh, Islamic theology, Quranic uh, interpretation, philosophy of science, and they were also the ones who introduced me to Said Nursi. I did, even though I'm from Turkey and Said has lived there and uh, wrote there. I I didn't know much about him and he's a great theologian uh, of 20th century. So they also introduced me to his, uh, his works. So you can imagine me, you know, being very fascinated about um, these theological texts and then connection between science and religion. And I'm going to medical school doing physiology, biochemistry and just enjoying, uh, even though I did dread becoming a medical doctor. That was the side note. But so This is going on, and then there's a turning point that happens when I was in my third year in medical school that made me feel that I I need to switch full-time religious studies, that I want to um, study and talk about religion full-time. And that was um, a very sad event, actually. Uh, There was um, in 1998. 1998, the fall of 1998, uh, in Turkey, um, there was this official ban on uh, headscarves. So, if you're a woman uh, uh, who is practicing um, uh, and practicing the wearing the scarf, uh, you know, believing that it's a Muslim obligation, then that meant you couldn't enter the campus. So, you literally had policemen show up uh, by my third year. They're like, "You cannot go in with that thing on your head," uh, and so on. So, that was that was that was a hard time, and at the same time there was these moments where um, they would take us when this band came finally to our university. Uh, it was a public university, but this ban the government ban went everywhere, private and public everywhere um, so you couldn't do it in a private colleges either so uh, our dean scheduled um, uh, Meetings with him, with her actually, and the other uh, professors uh, and the students who wear the headscarf. These were sessions in which they kind of announced the ban to us and also tried to justify it and say that you know be rational, be reasonable, take it off, you know, don't don't be silly and so on. And those encounters were a turning point for me because you know you have your anatomy professor, you know, meeting you. We also have had separate meetings where she'll be looking at, you know, look, I, it has been reported to me that you took your uh, exam with your headscarf on and you refused to take it off. Now, let's talk about this honor violation. And she'll go on, talk about how I have to pick between um, science or religion and religion is backwards and we're we're moderns. And, you know, get over superstition. And I would be like, you know, I became more religious through your anatomy class. The way I looked at it, the more I learned about human body, that made more, things made more sense to me spiritually. And she just was looking. And I couldn't believe that somebody so otherwise sophisticated could just get by with those cliches about religion. And that really made me feel like, you know what? Uh, I want to switch to studying religion full time. I want to study and I want to... Talk about religion and, and and show that actually it's not that easy to to um, and it's not fair to live by those cliches. That we we it's just, the situation is much more complex than picking between the two. Um. So that uh, so when I ended up being uh, kindly or not kindly kicked out of school, uh, not literally kicked out, but they just told me not to come again, and I, I kept getting detentions for not removing my headscarf. And finally, it was just you know. I wasn't wasn't gonna happen so so I had to leave and I came to the land of the free to the U S and during that time when I was looking into programs in the U S and I had this strong feeling that I'm I don't want to continue with medical school and switch to studying religion full time then I, I met, met uh, Ibrahim Abu Rabi may, may Allah um, may may God bless his soul he um, was teaching at uh, Uh, Hartford Seminary at the time and he encouraged me to go ahead and study with him so that's where I met Ingrid Madsen as well so I did my master's in Islamic studies and Christian Muslim relations at Hartford Seminary and then I continued on to my doctoral studies at the University of Virginia and there there I I did more work on uh, philosophy of religion and uh, Quranic interpretation and and, and some comparative Abrahamic uh, traditional study so uh and that's that's how I ended up uh, being a full time religious studies person and then become becoming a scholar when I finished it um in terms of my particular interest in miracles came uh i mean you you hit the subject of natural order natural causality um very much very quickly if you're looking at it, um uh, islamic theology and if you look at philosophical works so you the idea of how do you make sense of the world around us really comes through very, pretty quickly. And the Mika stories is very interesting way of thinking about nature and natural law and order around us. And uh, my particular uh, uh, incentive came when I was in a very casual conversation uh, with uh, with my uh, relatives. And one of my aunts, she, she was talking about, uh, we were talking about virgin birth. It just, a topic that came up, and she said, You know, I believe in this miracle story on the Quran, but you know, if a woman came to me now and she said, I'm pregnant, but I'm virgin, I wouldn't be able to believe her, to be honest. So that struck me and they stayed with me. I was like, Hmm, what is she trying to say? Initially, I thought that's ridiculous. Nobody who believes in the story would believe such a woman. In, in this day and age anyway but that was her way of asking the question what do these miracle stories mean why are they in the Quran what do we make of them it's not just about simply whether we believe in them or not people, we tend to think there's these two camps some people believe in the, that these miracles can happen other people who don't and that's it whereas here's somebody asking in her commonsensical way saying okay I believe in it okay it can happen all right fine I got it Or, or I personally believe in this. Okay, fine. But what do I do with this? Okay, this happened once in the entire human history, one time a virgin conceived. Okay, so what do I do with this? Where does that take me? And that really uh, was an opening to me to think more clearly about, um, you know, I wanted to look at miracle stories uh, and see what they could they could really mean. Not just in modern age, but I happen to be in this age. But in general, like why. Uh, the, these make miracle, miracle stories, are there in the Quran, and and then it enabled me to to talk about and discover how um, fidelity to the text, sacred text, and critical thinking are much more intertwined than we assume usually.
0: Yeah, and I, and I and I appreciate the way that you framed it, especially given your background, that you had this literal but also symbolic moment where you are at least allegedly supposed to make a choice between religion and science. And like, like you're saying, obviously it's, it's much less black and white than this, but a lot of people see it that way. So I, I appreciate you frame, framing, things like that. Mm-hmm. So as we move into talking about the book, you, you mentioned the story about your aunt as somebody who sort of straddles this in between space in terms of, she's not exactly sure what to do with the story, but she believes it, but maybe it only happened once. So when, when your average reader picks up the book, do you think, what, what do you think the average reader is going to think about miracles as they begin reading your text?
1: Um, I think uh, there will be a range of different types of readers, but um, a common type could be uh, you know, picking up the book and saying, okay, so is she going to show us that can miracles happen or not? Do they happen or not? uh and and then hopefully as they go in uh you know uh, and read more that they'll they'll see that the whole question is much more complicated than that and much richer much richer than that so um and then some for some other readers it, it might be even a non-issue you know why why are we talking about miracles in this day and age you know yeah and, uh, you know we are This is the age of technology. We're doing so many incredible stuff. Who would even talk about outdated miracle stories? So, there's this um, a scholar um, calls this as the academic sneer factor Uh, involved in discussing miracles.
0: Yeah.
1: That that could be there too. And I think it's uh, the book. I'm hoping that the book is welcoming all kinds of different starting points because throughout the book, uh, whatever um, uh, figure I'm looking at. Uh, whether it's Hume or Peirce or or um, Ghazali or Norsi um i i try to uh retrieve maybe retrieve is not the best word but to uh, to get the best i can get out of each author uh my my task is not there to say oh uh, this is right this is wrong why is the like why would an author insist on this particular point so much what is the insight here so i i feel like I'm hoping that the book is welcoming to all kinds of starting points, uh, and and all kinds of backgrounds, because uh, it's really trying to um, uh, delve into a rich subject and bring as much insight as possible, without you know without really uh, banning one way of thinking. Or yeah,
0: sure. And I think that that, that clearly comes across given the breadth of scholars and time periods that you've looked at I I absolutely agree that this book will speak to a a large audience and and so you mentioned that this question do miracles happen or not like it's more complicated than that so what what would you say is the main objective for your book or is is there a main central question that you are trying to answer
1: yeah so um In terms of uh, the objectives of the book, I think I want to do at least two things. One is to um, encourage us all to uh, rethink what we take for granted because uh, we have this commonsensical view vis-a-vis the world and the text as well, sacred text as well. And and to some extent that's justified. We need some common sense to go through life and we need to take certain things for granted to be able to plan our lives and so on. But when it becomes ossified, it hurts us because it deprives us from a much richer of uh, looking at the world and being in the world. So one, one of the things that this book wants to do is to... Um, encourage us to rethink what we take for granted and at the center of it is natural order. We live in a world with incredible order, a lot of order there are exceptions to order as well but generally this is a world in which we see a lot of regularity to the extent that we start uh, you know uh, doing science, we start uh, um, predicting things on the basis of past past patterns. So, uh, and it comes to a point where we start thinking that this is how things have to be. This is a given. And and this book is trying to kind of make us rethink. And in general, I think miracle stories are trying to do this. Um, and whether you're looking at the medieval debate between Ibn Rushd al-Ghazali or a more modern debate, um, or looking at Peirce or Saeed Nursi, in, in all of that, they are grappling with this uh, fact that we see regularity around us, but can we take it for granted? And the moment we take it for granted, we start thinking that they are, they are just ordinary in the just cheap sense of the world you know and there's nothing ordinary about a seed bursting into life or a wound healing or an embryo growing into a full full baby or a water falling draw- down from the sky or something evaporating these are extraordinary events yes they happen regularly Yes we can predict them yes we can even calculate the formula uh, of the speed of xyz but that, that that doesn't make them a given they are still uh things that don't have to happen in any shape or form but they do happen regularly and and to take that as something to think about as a sign as a gift even instead of taking it for granted uh, that's one of the things that um, this book wants to do and then the second one is um this book wants to illustrate how um, sacred texts, and in this particular case, the Qur'an, can be read in different ways. And in what appears to be very simple and strange in one level is actually very profound in another way. So like miracle stories, we look at them, and we're like, okay... Some people might look at it and say, okay, this is just an old old, superstitious story. Or someone else can say, well, it must have happened if, if the text says so, but I don't know what to do with it. It doesn't make any change in my life. And then somebody like Ghazali comes along and he's like, hmm, if this miracle story can be true, if there is such a miracle story in this text, what does that say about natural order? If this natural order... Can it, if it can be interrupted, even for once, that means it's not logically necessary. That means it's contingent. Really, how is that so? And that opens up a whole horizon for him to rethink the, the medieval lega- legacy that he was working with. And then he's credited for this breakthrough. He's you know, uh, Aristotelian thought had a lot of good in it, but then he had this it had this limitation that. Whatever continuously happened over and over, they said this is not rationally necessary, which is funny to us, you know, in the modern age. But that's how we, how they thought, and many people still think that way. But in, but the breakthrough comes to realize that you know even if it happens like that over and over in your empirical, um, uh, you know, level. I mean, in your experience, doesn't mean it has to be that way, and that enables you to um, rethink how you um, think about possibilities, um, and then also the existential level of of this. So um, I want to show in this book that something that may look very strange, uh, uh, you know, superficially, may be actually very profound and uh, very uh, enriching in the sacred text. And and to put the text into its um, existential context, if you will. I mean, I don't use this particular word actually in the book, but if I were to have addition I would it. I, I call it pragmatic reading in the book but what I really mean is um, to put the text into its existential context this is a text in this case the Quran is a text that claims to uh, be the word of somebody who runs the world who uh, sustains heavens and the earth and including human being now it's a separate question whether somebody believes in that claim or not but when we're looking at the text we cannot pretend that it doesn't claim that it does claim that so if it claims that then uh, in addition to putting the text into its linguistic and historical context we need to uh, allow the text to exist in that existential context where it says i am here to uh, crack the code to your existence So if the text is saying this and then going ahead and talking about miracle stories, then with that attitude, was like, what could it be enriching for my existence about these stories, these miracle stories? And especially given that this text at other places says you don't need miracles to believe. So why is this text telling me all these miracle stories? And so the moment we ask that that, uh, question, what difference does the text make or can it make in a reader's life? That That is um, extremely powerful. And then things that may not have come up otherwise come, come up.
0: Yeah, and so in terms of uh, words that you do use in the text, miracle is obviously one of those things. And so when you're using the word miracle in English, what, what do you have in mind and what kind of correspondence is there in the Qur'an? for this concept and also is there a term that the quran itself uses to describe these miracle stories
1: Uh very good Uh, that's a really good question because as you know i never actually define miracle in english in the text because i want to use it in just just the most basic sense Uh, and uh, somebody can take miracle as something extraordinary that's how we tend to use it in english or something that uh, that goes beyond the capacity of natural factors, that it calls for an agency of something beyond. And whatever way you take it, the, uh, the bottom line here is that the Qur'an itself never uses a particular term that literally would mean miracle. Ma'ajizah um, uh, is uh, typically considered to be the equivalent of a miracle in Arabic. And it literally means something that which overwhelms and overpowers. And in traditional uh, Islamic theology, this came to mean that that something that which God uh, empowered, a prophet empower uh, um, overwhelms his opponents. So the opponents say, you're not a real prophet, you're just making this up. And then the prophet by God's will shows a miracle uh, that is something which overwhelms them and they say, oh, whoa, can you do that? We can't do that. And we don't think anything naturally can happen like that. So there must be somebody behind you, somebody transcendent who sends you. The Quran itself doesn't have a word for it. And that's really exciting too. Uh, it it's, uh, refers to miracles as a sign, as a sign. And that is the same term used for natural events in the Quran. Rain is a sign too. A flower is a road sign too So that's, that's the exciting uh, point And that's where uh, this medieval um, Thinkers and interpreters Look at, especially I see that in Ghazali, more strongly in Nursi uh, And Nursi enables Me to kind of come and see that more clearly In Ghazali's work, but that's definitely A key key moment in the Quran and The same word is used for what we Would call as extraordinary As well as for the ordinary stuff
0: Right, and I think it's it's, it's really important that you point that out because it demonstrates really clearly how a native English speaker could bring baggage to the text that isn't really reflected in the text. And so like you're talking about not taking stuff for granted, I think even the basic terminology demonstrates that so well. So, so now talking about the figures that you explore, there's Five figures you look at: Ghazali, Ibn Rushd, Hume, Pierce, and Nursi from the more modern period. So, do you want to say something about Ghazali and Ibn Rushd because these are pre-modern Muslim scholars that you look at in terms of how they contributed to this discussion about what miracles mean, and also how how Ghazali and Ibn Rushd see things differently?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Um- so Ghazali uh, lives a century, almost a century before Ibn Rushd, and um, he is looking at miracle stories, uh, taking the text very seriously. I, I think Ibn Rushd also takes the Quran very seriously, but Ghazali takes it to a, to a deeper level because he, like everybody else, he would find these miracle stories unusual, right? I mean, things are happening that you yourself never saw before, and probably never ever see again in your lifetime. So. The text is talking about these, and then there is um, the assumption that, well, they, they had their own medieval science, so they were discovering patterns in the world, and there was this tendency to take things as as they are. This is how the fire burns. It has to burn. And then you read the miracle story, it says Abraham didn't burn. So what do you do with that? And Ghazali really... Took that that tension seriously and really, uh, I think one difference between Ghazali and Ibn Rush, as I see from outside, is that Ghazali was willing to kind of live with that unease for a while, and then he um, he puts forth a very very strong philosophical argument about how miracles miracles can happen, even though they don't happen usually. They can logically, and and then. It's, it's so interesting because he spends really good um, energy in doing that. And it's very convincing and brilliant philosophical uh, critique there. And he shows that, yes, miracles can happen logically. Okay. But then he doesn't consider miracles, miracles or miracle stories as essential for formation of faith. You don't believe because of miracle stories. You believe because the, the message of the prophet makes sense to you in a very deep way. <laughs> Rationally, as well as spiritually, it does make sense to you. It fits with you. That's why you believe. Especially in his later works, he says this. And then, you, and then we're left with question: So if you're not going to consider miracles uh, as essential to formation of faith, so why are you spending so much time trying to prove that they can occur? What's at stake for you there? And and um, I had to do a little bit of interpretation there, but I do demonstrate that it's very fair to Ghazali to say that he he's um, insisting on their possibility because of the way in which it changes the way we see nature. You can't take nature as granted. You can't say fire has to burn. No, it doesn't have to burn. There's nothing logical about it, but it does burn. It means there must be some choice behind it, that somebody is making a choice for it to, to, for it to burn. Because if there's a regularity that happens over and over again, which doesn't have to happen logically, that means there's somebody behind the scenes who is making a choice, a wise choice to to uh, uphold that pattern. So to him, regularity brings it brings you to God because there must be someone behind the scenes, and it also allows you to trust that that being who is. Uh, Uh, sustaining the world in this particular way, has wisdom. So he's not going to randomly change the order or he's not going to do anything to hurt you. But he can change the order and you should not idolize the order as if it's working on its own. So that's what um, what Ghazali is doing with miracle stories. He reads them as um, stories of interruption that enables us to appreciate what is not interrupted. So if the fire doesn't have to burn, each time it burns, when you make your tea, each time you make your tea on fire, you appreciate that there is this fire that gives warmth through which you are able to boil your your tea. It didn't have to be that way. Every second, that fire has to to be um, a channel of that warmth. It can't burn on its own. So for Ghazali, that's the breakthrough. Uh, In addition to the logical breakthrough that he introduced to medieval epistemology, That really forms the backbone of modern epistemology, Um, as I alluded to earlier. What Ibn Rushd is doing, he's coming to the Qur'an and he's fascinated uh, by uh, the passages in the Qur'an that encourage people to think about nature, to reflect, meditate on nature and use their reason. So he is also coming to the Qur'an in a way. um, He's looking at it and then he's also confirming it in his experience that he's like, yeah, Things work, and there is regularity in the world, and I can think. So he's very excited about those passages, and he uh, is also very excited about Aristotelian philosophy. So uh, he thinks there is this this incredible balance, uh, harmony between the two. Okay. So, but when it comes to miracle stories, that miracle stories are hard to account for within a, that within a rigid Aristotelian framework because in Aristotelian framework, empirical truth or empirical data, empirical reality and logical reality are uh, merged. There is no distinction between empirical stuff and logical stuff as we do today. Everybody does it now. We do it in modern age. They were merged in the Aristotelian era, uh, Aristotelian um context so he wants to stick to that when Ghazali questions that when Ghazali says things won't have to happen in a particular way, Ibn Rushd freaks out (laughs) to put it in in that uh, crude terms because he thinks Ghazali if we accept America's stories literally as they are then we are uh, rejecting science and he's very worried about that and rightly so rightly so and I, I don't ultimately agree with Ibn Rushd but He's very insightful because he teaches us what miracle stories cannot mean. He says, no, we can't read these stories in a way that would deny validity to, validity to, do, validity to science, okay? Um, and Ghazal, but Ghazal is not doing that. He's just saying, you go ahead, do your science. Just don't pretend that you uh, what these patterns that you discover have to be that way. And don't pretend that you thereby push God to the very beginning of the chain and not in every every moment so um, they, they differ in these ways I and mean, in the way they approach the Quran also they differ uh, Ghazali to me he um, is more receptive to the text even if it bothers him initially he tries to work around it and he tries to see what it can teach him uh, and Ibn Rushd is more uh, more on the de- defensive in some level and he says okay this text is here, as a philosopher, I can't accept the literal sense. I can't accept that natural order can be interrupted at any moment because for him it's a logical truth, not just the empirical reality. So he says, okay, I will allow certain readers to take it at its face value. So he divides the interpreters into categories. So some commonsensical people, if they can believe in that story, go ahead, let them believe. But in the higher level, you kind of don't, you're not supposed to believe it, that this can be real. Uh, he doesn't, to be honest with him, um, I mean, to be fair to Bernouche, he doesn't say this this way explicitly, but the way um, he discusses the whole thing and disagrees so strongly with Ghazali takes us there.
0: Yeah, and I, I think this is a, a helpful um, thought experiment for other contexts too because just the whole idea of questioning the epistemology of science, it's a very taboo thing to do mm-hmm. but in part right things are taboo because they're taboo and so you know being able to see rewind the clock 800 years and see ghazali asking these questions is mm-hmm. i think re- refreshing in a, in a really interesting way mm-hmm. um and there's lots of context that mm-hmm. uh, i think connect in the modern world mm-hmm. so after you talk about ghazali and ibn Rushd, you talk about you, you shift gears a little bit, and you look at Hume and Pierce. So could you say a little bit about what they add to the conversation, and also why you why you chose to look at them? I think, and correct me if you disagree, but I think a lot of readers will see Ghazali ibn Rush. These are two very big names in Islamic intellectual history, so I won't be surprised when they add to this conversation. And then you bring in different different kinds of thinkers. So what What was your your strategy there and what kinds of contributions they make to this discussion?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. Um, So we turn to Hume and Peirce in the next two chapters and um, they are... uh, I look look at them in the book because they show us how these questions that were brought up about through the Miracle Stories uh, are shared questions. Uh, they can be asked in different forms in different uh, contexts so Hume and and Peirce they definitely did not read the Quran to the best of my knowledge but they asked similar questions about order and possibility of its interruption and also uh, I picked Hume and Peirce because Hume is um, is considered to be uh, somewhat a a turning point in Western thought in the sense that um, he really um, challenged some of the assumptions of uh, rationalism uh, and really shook them to the core that after Hume, you couldn't just take them for granted like that. It wouldn't be possible. So he, uh, and it's not, as I say in the book, it's not original to him. When he questioned uh, the, um, the uh, rationalist assumptions and he when he questioned, he criticized uh, uh, induction method as not yielding certainty, it, this, this is not unique to him, it was, t- it was um, said before by some of the uh, people in the European milieu and also you know five centuries ago by Ghazali. So it's not original to him, but what is original to him is that he's able to articulate these in a very accessible language that could not be ignored anymore. So, uh, for instance, this um, connection between cause and effect, a natural cause and a natural effect, uh, you know, people thought, you know, this is the cause and it makes the effect. And then, and that's logical. And Hume comes along and he he does what Ghazali did uh, in in his medieval context. Um, He brings this breakthrough. And this break from uh, uh, that way of thinking and saying, listen, there's nothing logical about fire burning. Mm -hmm. There's nothing logical about when you leave a stone unsupported, that it will fall downward instead of upward. There's nothing logical about it. It's just that it happened over and over again. And you said, well, it has to happen. It doesn't have to happen. And that becomes almost like a crisis in a way, because if we if there's nothing logical about it, there's no. Certainty, uh, certain ground on which we can build uh, our expectations for the future, because uh, if the ball doesn't have to fall, even if you see thousand times falling, it doesn't mean it has to fall thousand one time, you know, thousand first time. So, it, it, and that's a big, big crisis. Uh, he um, he brings the, the kind of wound open. He it's there, but he brings it to the open, and then he. Uh, doesn't quite give us a way out of it, but at least he puts it on the table. And after Hume, you can't you can't just assume that yes, we prove, prove stuff, and this is how things are. You can't take things for granted. And um, I mean, Kant deals with this question. Much of what he was doing was in response to Hume. That you know, how am I going to you know talk about certainty um, in in response to this? Um, so Hume is important that way, and he's also fa- famous for his critique of miracles. So I take him to be uh, almost like a a resurrected Ghazali-Ibn Rushd hybrid, because like Ghazali, he questions this idea that natural causality is logical and cannot be interrupted. And like Ibn Rushd, he turns around and says miracles can't happen. And it's a contradiction for him. But at the same time, uh, I I see it as... um, Highlighting two crucial elements. One, that we can't be naive about natural order anymore, and we can't make these grand claims about it has to happen that way. At the same time, we have something at stake about uh, protecting common sense and being able to live in a world where we can expect things to happen in a particular way. So Ibn Rush does a good job. I'm mean, human, does a good job of bringing forth that uh, two dimensions, even though it It's kind of contradictory for him, but it works for our purposes. And I picked Peirce because he is uh, a first-rate philosopher who is also a first-rate scientist at the same time. So he has been in the scientific field. Uh, He he was uh, a chemist. And he worked as a chemist for over a decade. And then he's this brilliant mind who also thought through the implications of philosophy of science and so on. So he comes along and he he um, really gives us some important keys about how to both affirm our understanding of nature in a way that doesn't disrupt our um trust and common sense and expecting things to happen in a certain way. At the same time, he gives us um, uh, a way of anchoring them in a bigger uh, in a metaphysical. Uh, he wasn't a metaphysicist, but he does anchor it in um, what he calls the scientific metaphysics, which means he he allows uh, or he builds a certain um Concepts that allows him to talk about the possibility of science in a world that's not absolute—it's a contingent world. I don't know if that's making it.
0: Yeah, yeah, cer- certainly. And so, was it? So this, this is a half joke, but I have to ask it anyway. So, when when Hume was was resurrected as an inc- or when Ghazali and Ibn Rush were resurrected into Hume, was was that a real miracle? Or, not? <laughs> and anyways, you don't have to answer that. That was just. Mm-hmm. that was just a bad joke so so he, human peers, so they're bringing this later um, idea that Ighezali had already talked about earlier but they have a different context and they're they're adding things to it and have a different educational background which affects things mm-hmm. and then at the end you talk about Nursi and mm-hmm. he he's his own sort of character so could you tell us a little bit about who who Nursi is and then how he relates to these other thinkers that you had already been looking at.
1: Yeah. um, So Sayyid Nursi was um, a great theologian and Quranic interpreter who lived uh, at the end of the 19th century till uh, the mid-20th century. He died in 1960. He had a long life. Um, And he's very interesting and and, Unfortunately, very very understudied. Uh, he, what he does is that he he's one of those minds um, who is aware of the modern situation or contemporary situation. He realizes that some some of the things that uh, people didn't ask before are asked now, and some of the things um, that are um, that are not that are put forth are actually. Um, they need to be questioned further. So one of the things is, uh, this is a time in which science is a big thing. I know science is improving, technology is working wonders, and people are just fascinated by it. To the extent that they start making these grand claims about how they know everything about the world, and then they prove things, and and then you don't actually need a transcendent in the picture anymore. And this is very similar to what Peirce went, went through. I mean, similar time frame, and Peirce actually got a lot of heat for uh, insisting that the patterns we discover in the world are not absolute. And that's what eventually turns out to be for Miracles for Purse, because miracles are those um, uh, statements uh, or uh, um, articulations showing that there is regularity in the world, it's real, but it's not absolute. And there's always exceptions to these natural laws that we discover. It's it's a more... Um, um, fluid world than some scientists have us uh, believe, and that that era it was there was a lot of rigidity about natural law. People felt like you know we found the laws, but there's a law for everything, even though we didn't find it. There's regularities to the extent that there's no free will. Everybody's product of their you know, environment and genes. This that, um, and and this this was this mechanistic world, world view. And when he said no, but there's nothing in in our empirical data that shows this. This is not accurate because we, we do find patterns, but we also find exceptions in patterns. What is this?
0: Can I, can I ask you about that, Esra? So what what would be some examples of from science where we've assumed that there's a pattern and then we find that there's an exception to the pattern?
1: Everything. Think of gravity. Okay, so we have a formula for gravity that we can calculate if you give me the height uh, of uh, from which you drop the stone and it's, uh, you know, surface area, whatever. uh, I can calculate to how fast it will fall down and so on and so forth. Right. So we do have a pattern. But then this is if you go out in the world and if a leaf is falling, you can't give me ever the exact way it will fall and exact time frame it will fall in. You can give me a range but you can't because each there there is lots of diversity in the world. So we do minimize these um, these other things and uh, um, and try to uh, have a basic figure so we can construct buildings and so on and so forth. But we actually really don't know exactly how a leaf falls down. I mean, not we don't not how, but we can't really give you a precise calculation of how this particular leaf will fall down. Sure, just can't. And everything is like that. You know, temperature, boiling, everything. I can tell you around this temperature around this um, temperature, it will start evaporating water. But I can't tell you exactly when because it's always a range. Uh So there are patterns. Definitely. We don't live in a chaotic world, but it's also a world of diversity, um, spontaneity. Right. Mm If somebody says, it's not my job to talk about that, I'm a scientist, I'm looking at just the patterns, fine. But if that becomes a worldview, then it's misleading, right? So a scientist can say, a, psych- a psychiatrist, a psychologist can go in and say, you know what, I'm interested in patterns. So I'm going to bracket free will. I really am interested in what kind of families produce what kind of children, if there is um, you know, domestic violence in the house, what percentage of the kids become violent when they grow up. I'm just interested in looking at the environmental factors and genetic factors. And I'm going to bracket free will. Fine, you, she can do that. But we cannot come around at the end and forget that there is no free will because we, don't, we, can't, we can't take it into account in, in science. Okay, you can't take it into account for your purposes. That doesn't mean this is not a world in which free will is real, right? So this happens all the time, this kind of mixing, uh, confusing the registers.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I thought it would be it would be helpful for our listeners to exa- – exactly what you said, there's so many examples. It's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. It comes back to this question, right, of epistemology and mm-hmm. why, we, why we assume we, we know what we know. And so, re- returning, returning to Nursi, uh, so how, how else does he contribute to so the discussion what, about miracles in the Quran?
1: An interpreter of the Quran. Okay, he, he is a Quranic theologian. And one of the things that makes him so important is that he uh, reads the Quran within its existential context and always with an idea that what is it telling to the reader? What, how does it change the way the reader would see the world? so he takes similarly miracle stories in a very very profound way and he would bring it in ways that you're reading the text and you're like whoa how did he make that connection so he would talk about signs of god in nature so natural stuff nothing extraordinary but it's extraordinary in the sense that the things that are happening uh, cannot be accounted for by the natural causes we associated them with for instance let's say a baby is growing uh what are causes going inside into that? I know there's DNA, there is the mother eats a lot of, you know, salad, there's that, hormones. And and what comes out is this incredibly complex being, uh, very well organized. And throughout the process of uh, pregnancy, this, this baby is cared for in a very special way. And there's, so there's the compassion is there. There's knowledge there whoever whatever is making this baby knows there's sunshine outside so her eyes get you know figured according to the sunshine outside whatever is making this baby knows that there is something to eat outside so her stomach and enzymes are configured accordingly and plus there's consciousness and that plus she has emotions and so on so what goes in these these um, dna is a recipe okay recipe goes in and these different chemicals go in and this comes out so nurse says you know what what goes in and what comes out, there is a, an incredible gap between the two, because the things that go in, they don't need, know how to plan, they don't know they don't have comprehensive knowledge, and they don't certainly have don't have the uh, mercy uh, to care about this things well being, nor the creativity. And some of the things that go in, most of them are uh, dead, DNA is not alive. But then, what comes out is filled with life he says there is this gap between the two and in that gap uh, qualities uh, of god come out that there must be someone wise behind the scenes someone incredibly creative and life giver behind the scenes who is taking these natural courses and you know creating this result so he's um and as he's talking about this, and this is nothing necessarily extraordinary in the Islamic thought, this is, you know, a typical mainstream Sunni theology uh, put in modern terms. Uh, and it's the key Quranic piece, because the Quran keeps talking about how the world is the sign that um, that gap between what goes in and what comes out is, is the sign that there must be somebody else in the scene who's acting, who's creating. So he's bringing in the Quran very clearly here and then uses the term miracle here and that's the fascinating use of the term miracle he says this event is a miracle not in the sense that it's extraordinary it doesn't happen it happens all the time but what the result exceeds the capacity of the natural causes that we associated associate them with we think in superficial level this made that but then if you think about it this can't make that but it happens yeah it happens all the time, but still, it can't make that. So there must be somebody behind the scenes, and this is a miracle. So he says he talks about he uses the term miracles for everyday stuff, which is very Quranic because the same term for miracle in the Quran is the same term for natural um, stuff in the Quran. Sign, yeah. So he brings that that into the picture, and that's that's very powerful the way he does it. And then he 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 says when you see a. Uh, uh, a plant uh, digging its root roots through the the hard rock and soil that's incredible yes it happens and we know how to describe it there is an enzyme that comes out and that the soil is pierced through and that that, that, that those very weak uh, roots they reach out to the water below it happens all the time but this is amazing because what goes in is these this fluid and what comes out this incredible result that this thing is wisely able to detect and reach the water despite the hard rock. So he says, this is Moses' staff hitting the water in the Quran. This is these, this event is reciting this miracle story to you. So that's another incredible thing in Nurses' thought that he keeps talking about the world speaking, talking about God. So And then he does it in a very... Uh, Sophisticated way that takes into all scientific uh, concerns and scientific misunderstandings that people misunderstand science. So he takes that in as well and makes connections to Ibn Rushd's concerns about science, to Ghazali's concern about existential connection, to Peirce. Um, so in that way, he really becomes a, a nice way of articulating uh, some of the major insights about natural order and the way we we are we exist in that order and the way we respond to that not as taking it for granted but with gratitude that really comes all together in nurses work
0: yeah and i think another one of the helpful things that in 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 insightful innovative things you do in the book is you bring together all these voices that might not necessarily be paired together but you show how they're addressing similar questions in different contexts and so it just raises the idea that these questions about what to do with with miracles and how to think about epistemology these are human questions that
1: people exactly. answer
0: in different times and places and the quran is also interested in these questions so coming back to this question about this false binary between religion and science uh, what what do you what do you think about this binary between literal and metaphorical readings of the quran i know you've you've been you've been talking about this throughout, and you delve into it in the book. Um, but if you could have some fi- final thoughts about how how, how readers and our, our listeners might think about these seemingly binary ways of approaching the Qur'an through the literal or the metaphorical. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when we, when we put the text in its uh, existential context and really uh, take seriously its main claims about what it wants to do to us, you know, it's it's saying, the text is saying, I'm here from your creator and I want to inform and enlighten the way you see the world, you you uh, exist in the world. Now, if we take that seriously, then um, and really tune into the text, then we see that the, there is no tension between literal and metaphorical. Um, and we don't have to choose between the two necessarily. So in the case of, for instance, um, Uh, miracle stories when Nursi reads uh, Moses' stuff and then sees it happening in everyday life in nature now he's not trying to pick between the two he's not trying to say well I can't take it literally but I can take it in metaphorical sense in nature no the very literal sense leads to the metaphorical in a way because when you take it seriously that this could happen to Moses that what I take as granted could be interrupted and is actually contingent it can be the other way around then then you start seeing the world differently even the regularity differently to give an example let's say uh Elliot, you take uh, roses to your wife every monday night okay every single monday night it has been a couple years you do it all the time so one monday night you come in you come in and you don't have roses oh
0: you,
1: you got something else okay yeah You got chocolate, or you didn't get anything, let's say, just that Monday. That interruption is important in itself, okay? At the same time, that interruption enables your wife to think about all those moments where you did actually bring roses on Monday night. Right. So that interruption brings her back to the uninterrupted and make her appreciate uninterrupted you know, turn of you know, uninterrupted um, event, events. So similarly, like when you read a miracle story like Virgin Birth, it it perplexes us, it surprises us, it shocks us, right? It's an interruption. You need two parents, and here we go. There's only one parent, one human, you know, one parent. So how is that that going to work out? So that interruption enables the reader to come back and rethink the pregnancies that he considered as normal. So then that brings you to to the understanding that there was nothing logical about Elliot bringing uh, roses Monday nights. He didn't have to. There's nothing, there's no logical link between it being Monday and you receiving roses from your husband. Even if it happened for centuries, there's no logical link. So then that interruption enables you to uh, have a different look at the way the, the regular stuff happen. So similarly, in this case, then some people say, well, what do we do? Do we take it in a way that it doesn't uh, change the way we think about order? Let's take it metaphorically. So it doesn't change the way we think about natural order. That doesn't work. Let's take it literally. What does that mean? Even if you take it literally, okay, you take it literally. Things can happen. Exceptions can happen. But if it doesn't change the way you look at the world, it's also useless. So the choice is not between literal and metaphorical necessarily. The choice is really to uh, allow the text to offer um, a way of looking at the world that's different from what we we could have found on our own, and that really changes the way uh, we we see the world. And that's that's the key for I think.
0: Right, and we we unfortunately haven't had time to talk about this, but one of the really interesting parts of the book that stuck out to me was how interpreters of the quran were arguing that the non-literal readings could be better readings sometimes not because the literal reading is impossible but like you were saying because the non-literal reading is like less mysterious and has some kind of relevance on someone's life
1: exactly and
0: yeah i i found that that that's striking so we're taking up a bit of your time so before we conclude could i could I just ask maybe what might be an obvious question, but I'm sure you've thought about it a lot. So what, what's your favorite miracle story in the Qur'an? And I use the term favorite um, as you'd like to interpret it. It's the most perplexing, the most interesting, the thing that people have struggled with the most. So however you want to interpret that, I'd be curious on your thoughts.
1: I actually don't have a particular favorite miracle story. Um, I, um, I think each miracle story uh, is in itself an interruption uh, in a different way. And it each has its unique aspect to it. So I don't have a particular miracle story. I do know Staff of Moses, um, Ghazal uses it uh, as almost like a symbolic way of talking about it. Uh, is a short one, shorthand to talk about miracles. So that 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 is also mentioned a lot repeatedly in the Quran. Right. But I don't have a particular favorite uh, um, episode uh, in the Quran. That's I and mean, virgin birth is interesting, and that's how I started out the book because uh, one could say this is ridiculous. It can't happen. How do we? Why do we even read this kind of stuff in this day and age? I can hear somebody saying that. At the same time. This is the age in which we literally have you know, women conceiving with outside of conventional intercourse. So this we have this reproductive technology that things are happening in the ways that didn't ever happen before. So and actually this could apply to other micro as well. That's why they're still so relevant because the things that we we think are normal now, two centuries ago. If you told it to somebody, they would think you're mad. Like, if I told somebody that I'm going to talk to somebody who is thousands of miles away from me, they would be saying, Isra, you lost it. It's not possible, right? But it's happening. And then the question of interpretation comes. Like, how do you interpret this? And instead of taking it for granted or bragging about how smart we are, we need to come back. And what kind of world that we can detect an er incredible order and then we can actually utilize that order to do things new. And what is behind this? Who is behind this? And, and, and that takes us to think more, a bit more about how we uh, perceive the world around us.
0: Yeah, and I think, just to emphasize again, uh, I think this, this book will interest a lot of different people because of the different angles that it looks at things, but also because of these questions that relate to so many things besides just the figures that you look at or just the Qur'an. But I think the way that you started things off by talking about this moment in your medical school career and then your shift to interest in religious studies, I think that's very reflective in a lot of ways of the different angles you take to the book and the types of questions you you ask so i, I really appreciate that so before we conclude israel can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on and some future projects and will they relate to or depart from your monograph on miracles in the quran
1: uh sure um so currently i'm working on a um Translation project. What I am doing is I'm uh, looking at with a colleague of mine. We're looking at some of the key passages inside Nursi and uh, translating them into English with with annotation. And and this is uh, growing out of my my work on miracles in that the way so Nursi uh, brought together various concerns about interpreting the Quran and and living it out in the world by uh, allowing it to inform. Uh, the way we see nature, the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves in it. Um, I, I want to offer one, um, almost like a reader on site, like nursey who could, uh, who that, that would give access to people uh, to um, access Nursi's works a bit more and and hopefully study more because he's really understudied. Um, and then beyond that, I, I'm not sure which direction to, to take. On one hand, I'm being pulled towards existential context so i want to look at passages in the quran uh where again there's a it appears to be like irrelevant or um confusing and then to look at the reception history and see how um meaningful they were i mean they were understood to be or they can be uh so gives a lot of wealth in that aspect and there are also some um favorite classical uh, interpreters that i want to bring in uh, so i did that a bit with my article on um abraham's uh, attempt uh, at sacrificing his son uh, and there again if you see a passage it's ridiculous it seems at first it's like what you're willing you should be willing to kill your son when god wants you to do what a ridiculous text child abuse what is it and then uh And then this is within a tradition where child sacrifice is forbidden. And here's an interesting, uh, perplexing moment. And then if you go through in that article, I I unpack and the ways in which this provocative text has been um, understood to yield so much insight that would not appear to us in the beginning. And again, by putting the text into existential context. So that's one way I want to go toward. And the other one I'm not sure about is to... uh, To look at science textbooks, that's the science part, to look at some science textbooks and to see there how um, uh, what's going on in the textbook is going beyond uh, regular science into fields of uh, metaphysics and theology. And to say, uh, you know, to invite us to rethink some of the ways. In which we talk about things in science, uh, we have incredible use for science. At the same time, some of the stuff said in the name of science are actually not scientific; they are philosophical views right. passed under the view of science. You know, so that's that's another direction I want to look at. Like, what what would it be to have a project of you know taking a, a you know middle school science textbook and see the ways in which a scientist is making great, you know, contribution to our understanding of the world. And at the same time, he's going beyond just talking about science, but he's actually now putting forth his worldview. And, and it's important to notice that so that we can uh, more explicitly talk about that and, and be, have more room for agreeing and disagreeing rather than it, it being insisted under the name of science.
0: Well, these, sounds like, these sound like very exciting projects, Isra, and I look forward to um, learning about them as a fan of your work and someone who's presented on you with panels, of course. Uh, I'll, I'll look forward to learning about these future projects. And finally, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this is a really rich discussion, and I think uh, our listeners will benefit a lot from hearing you unpack your book. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Iliad. This was a pleasure.
0: That was my conversation with Isra Yazigiolo, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at St. Joseph's University, about her new book, Understanding Quranic Miracle Stories in the Modern Age, published by Pennsylvania State University Press 2013. Thanks for listening.